I think we are so good at just continuing to be in motion. And we function at a really high level. So I think it's really easy to say, I'm okay. And we are okay on the surface level. But I think often over time, we see within the therapy room or within the clinical setting that it's these places of grief where little cracks are made that when we don't pay attention to them, they become maybe larger issues that we carry with us throughout our lives. So the unique thing about helping entrepreneurs or like high performers grieve is that we're really good at not grieving and our lives are really full. So it's very, very difficult for us to give the time and space to grief that it may warrant. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. There are a few things that I can say with certainty we are all going to experience in our lifetime. I think there's this old adage that uh, for many of us, we will all collectively experience the notion of, of taxes and death. And I will add to that list, grief. That is the nature of my conversation today. Not taxes or death, but grief. How do we manage the complexity of feelings that come upon us often unexpectedly with the loss of a job or a marriage? or a loved one. My guest today, Dr. Sherry Walling, is a psychologist for entrepreneurs. And her first book is all about keeping your shit together as an entrepreneur. And her second book, which we are speaking to today, Touching Two Worlds, chronicles in part her own journey in the movement through the grief process of losing her father and her brother in a very short period of time. And it combines this personal account with her insight as a psychotherapist, and really, I would venture to say, rewrites the narrative and expectations around how we need to manage grief. This conversation is not just for people who have experienced a loss. This conversation is for all of us, because one of the universal tenets of grief is usually that it comes upon us unexpectedly. And some of the largest, unexpected, challenging things we move through in our life are actually easier to manage when we have some level of preparedness accompanied them. And that is the spirit with which we engaged in this conversation today. We're also moving into a time of year where grief can be triggering and triggered for a lot of people. Moving through the holidays and times of ritual and tradition are often a place where we notice most that things are not the same. And while this can be part of the grieving process and will be part of the grieving process for everyone, it doesn't mean it has to derail you for your entire future. It doesn't mean that it always needs to be a point of painful inflection. And one of the beautiful things that happened in this conversation is Sherry provided a new framework for thinking about life on the other side of loss. How do we rebuild and how do we rewrite and how do we do it while honoring those people and those circumstances and those elements of our lives that are so special to all of us? This is a special episode. It is for everyone. And I'm so excited to introduce you to Dr. Sherry Walling. Dr. Sherry Walling, welcome to Impact. Hey, Megan, it is great to be with you. I'm so excited about our conversation today. 
Well, I'm really looking forward uh, to this conversation. And it's, I, I acknowledge this in the introduction, but this is a different conversation than uh, we typically have, but so important and so critical. I feel like on the, on the podcast in general with impact, we're always looking forward and how can we put these pieces out? And you, you know, these individuals, well, these entrepreneurs and these go-getters who are constantly producing in the world. And then all of a sudden life comes out of nowhere. There is a loss or an interruption to that flow. And particularly for ambitious people, uh, that is really challenging. And so we're going to unpack this idea of grief today. How do we hold space for the simultaneous existence of ambition and then this very human, unavoidable experience of grief? So before we do those those two things. I'm wondering if you can share with my audience why you are actually so uniquely qualified to lead this conversation. Oh, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I love this conversation, especially for our entrepreneurial brothers and sisters out there who are trying to make amazing things happen in the world. So I, like you, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm also a clinical psychologist. And so I'm in that category of like ambitious people who are action-oriented and making things happen in the world. But in the past few years, I've become kind of this accidental expert in grief. And that expertise came from my own experience of significant loss. Um, I lost my dad to esophageal cancer and my brother to suicide in a very tight timeline within six months of each other. I have been kind of catapulted into this world of figuring out how to be very much alive, very much in my work, very much in my family, in the joy and creativity that sort of mark most of my life, but then also how to be super present to these losses and be open to this world of grief and longing and sadness and darkness that has so much to teach and so much depth to offer, but is sometimes a very, very scary place to let oneself go. So I've recently written a book called Touching Two Worlds, which is sort of about this duality of how do you live in joy and also be very open and honest about the parts of our life that really can hurt. When we are... And, and I want to acknowledge your loss. I am sorry for that. Uh, I'm sorry for that loss. And I appreciate the opportunity for you to share the meaning that has emerged from it with all of us. For you as a clinical psychologist, how did your understanding of grief shift from you could, you could hold space for people who were grieving and help them manage it? What, what changed for you in your understanding of grief when you went through it in such a profound way yourself? I think my framework of grief as a psychologist was around those folks who ended up in my office because they felt stuck in grief. So my training and my experience was really of grief as pathology, um, as grief as failure to move through. My rethinking about that is is really to like depathologize grief, of course, as a very normal, important part of love a very normal and important part of human relationship and human emotion, and one that has all of these sort of riches and depths instead of like an ailment that needs to be treated. I think the other thing that's really shifted in my approach to grief is, you know, your your listeners are well aware, I'm sure, of the way in which emotion, trauma, grief, big experiences are held in our bodies. And most psychotherapy really addresses grief in particular through this very kind of 
prefrontal cortex front of frame. Like, let's talk about it. Let's emote about it. And while those things are extraordinarily valuable, my own experience found them to be insufficient. And so really integrating the body and movement into a course of working through grief is now absolutely central to how I think about what humans need when they're grieving. What happens in the body when someone's grieving? I think, well, the body responds similar to the body's response to acute stress, right? The body in grief has experienced a shock that is external, it's out of control, it's not desired, maybe unanticipated. But even in cases where someone knows that a death is going to occur, like like with my experience losing my dad to a chronic illness like cancer, like it was predictable that he would die. But the body still is trying to put together this like new reality. It's trying to re-anchor itself in a new reality. And so it's quite disoriented and has, like I mentioned, that same sort of set of physiological reactions that are marked by stress. So when the body is under stress like that, it is looking for this sort of new cohesive way to be in a new environment or in a new context, which is like the world without this person that you loved. When we when we look at that and we look at those patterns, and I, I don't want to take grief and like make it a cognitive thing, but I feel like we've also collectively moved through and touched on various elements of grief as we move through the pandemic, grieving shifts to our routine, grieving, you know, not having certain rites of rites of passage, whether that is a graduation or a funeral, or even the, the birth that you wanted to, to have for your, for your children. Have you seen similar patterns as people have emerged and moved through the last two years as you do when someone's experienced an, an acute form of grief, or is it something different? Oh, I think there's a lot of similarities. So I think both things like the pandemic and the loss of someone really call on our internal processes around meaning. So I've been really interested in watching what has widely been called the great resignation, because I think that that those big shifts in culture, those big shifts in, hey, what do I find meaningful and a worthy use of my very, very valuable moments on this planet? Um, I'm no longer willing to consent to be participating in a job that doesn't feel meaningful to me. And so people are leaving work and people are asking for different kinds of things from their lives. And in many ways, I think that's a grief response. On the other hand, you know, I think we're seeing... Um, unprecedented level of alcohol abuse, of drug overdose, of these other kinds of coping, not so healthy coping strategies that I think are this collective attempt to numb and avoid and try to come to terms with significant loss without being able to make sense of it. I want to get into this coping piece, but before we before we do, there's a few things I want to establish. One, how are you defining grief so that we're all on the same page? Yeah, a great question. Quite simply, the emotional reaction to loss, which can involve sadness, anger, joy, meaning-making, all kinds of emotional and cognitive sort of processes. And when you have spoken about grief, I know you you have sort of leaned into this idea of helping ambitious people grieve. Do do ambitious people or entrepreneurs grieve differently or do they have different coping mechanisms? What's different about this population? I think we are so good at just continuing to be in motion. 
and we function at a really high level. So I think it's really easy to say, I'm okay. And we are okay on the surface level. But I think often over time, we see within the therapy room or within the clinical setting that it's these places of grief where little cracks are made that when we don't pay attention to them, they become maybe larger issues that we carry with us throughout our lives. So the unique thing about helping entrepreneurs or like high performers grieve is that we're really good at not grieving and our lives are really full. So it's very, very difficult for us to give the time and space to grief that it may warrant. What do we need to know about how to grieve? And the context for this question is, is I feel like Uh, I feel like grief catches everyone by surprise. So we may even know that the death is is happening. Um, And it's kind of like birth. I feel like sometimes the experience of giving birth, you're like, whoa, that was like way bigger than I, I didn't think it'd be quite like that, right? So like what, and I, you know, if you're prepared, if you're kind of prepared for the birth piece, it changes the experience. What do we need to know about grief that we actually just never talk about as a society? I think one, it's it's really not linear. It doesn't follow linear time. So for example, I think there's a little bit of a default assumption that you might be a mess for a couple of weeks and then, you know, maybe take a few weeks where you're not working at the same level as normal, but eventually you kind of get back to it and you've gone through this like little linear trajectory. It's just not linear. So you can be in the depths of grief, like the day after a loss, and then totally, totally fine on the outside for a while. And by totally fine, I mean functional. I mean awake. I mean alert. I mean I enjoy. I mean creative, productive. But then maybe six months later, there's this this huge significant shift and the grief, grief is reopened or is opened in a different way. So if we can just throw out the linear timeline, this sort of assumption that grief diminishes as time passes and understand that it's non-linear, I think that's really, really helpful for folks. I also think this idea of grief as kind of sadness is not super helpful because grief is many, many things. It can be anger. It can be anguish. It can be sadness. It can be stillness, but it can also be fuel. It can also be passion. It can be um, the determination to change something, fix something, advocate for something. That's all part of a grief process. And so I think grief can be um, fiery as much as it can be blue. And so giving space to all the parts of grief, I think is really helpful. And I've watched you live this online. I've watched you like post something where, you know, you're like frolicking at the beach and having fun. You're like, this is what grief can look like as well. And I, and I love that you are normalizing that spectrum of, of feelings. I think sometimes, and you're, you're the expert on this, but we behave a certain way because we, this is how you are supposed to grieve, but it's not necessarily in alignment with how you are feeling in that uh, in that present moment. And I, I feel like in posting those things, at least what you've done for me is you've given me permission to feel a full spectrum of feelings on no one's timeline, but my own. Yes. Oh, I think that's, that's so, I love that that's come across. Cause that's so much the heart of the message that all of it is acceptable. Like my, the pictures of me frolicking the ocean or being being um, on the trapeze or doing these really amazing circusy things that bring me deep, deep joy. That is all part of my grief story because it's like this deep determination that's born out of death to really enjoy the moments of my life. And it is very much integrated into grief. 
And so I think understanding grief as joy is also, uh, you know, an important part of the picture here. What do we need to know as individuals around how to hold space for other people to grieve? Grief is, for most of us, very similar to trauma in that it is an emotional kind of cognitive, like it's a, it's an experience that is born out of something happening that wasn't our choice. And so one of the wonderful, beautiful things about being able to show up for people who are in a state of grief or, or trauma for that matter is offering simple choice. So one of my favorite things that anyone said to me in the context of my own grief was my friend Jamie said, would you like to tell me a story about Dave? Dave was my brother. And the phrasing of that was so beautiful because the would you like to gives me beautiful choice. I could have easily said, and I don't feel like it right now. <laughs> like It had this real like gentle consent. I also think the phrasing of tell me a story about is really lovely because it creates an openness for me to talk about my brother as a child or my brother as my friend or my brother's the adventures we went on camping when we were kids. It's not just a story about his death. It's not just about the loss. There's a, a broadness to the question. So that kind of um, open-ended consent choice-oriented question is really lovely. I also think it's so helpful to offer just practical help in the aftermath of loss because there's so much disruption and disorientation that goes on in people's lives. Like it's just not that fun to drive the carpool or, uh, you know, figure out meals for your family when your emotional resources are taxed in a different way. So offering, hey, can I bring you dinner or can I have something sent, I think are really, really lovely ways to show up for folks. Do we ever heal from grief or do we just transition to a different version or integrate the experience differently? It's interesting in the phrasing, healing implies that it's an illness, right? It's a brokenness. It's something we have to recover from. I would say that it's a little bit of a both and. So we don't stay forever in the urgency of the acute, hey, my world is cracked open and my guts are out on the floor and I'm trying to like muddle through. We don't stay there. But I, I do think it's something that becomes part of us, becomes integrated into us. Um, it's sort of like a shifting identity. You know, when I introduce myself now, I say, my name is Sherry. I have, you know, my, my mom lives in California. My dad's passed away. I have a brother that lives in Sacramento and I have a brother that I lost. And even in my shifting, my identity, my way of describing myself and my family has been shifted by grief, by death. And so that I will carry with me always. I will never again be someone whose parents live in California and whose brothers live. You know, there will always be this differential in the way that I am in the world because of this loss. And so that's where it just becomes part of us. It's a set of experiences we now carry forward with us into the rest of our lives. Is our, I'm going to say lack of preparedness around grief, simply symptomatic of our lack of connection to our emotions in general? Is there a, is there a worsening of our, or a deepening of our uh, grief response? Because societally we have sort of pushed emotions and shoved them under the rug or like created a, a space where they're really not an acceptable portion 
of our society. Yeah, I think our lack of openness or preparation makes us isolated. And I think it can make us feel shame about not having moved forward faster. What's really interesting when I think about how we prepare for grief is many, many children's stories, uh, stories that my kids have watched, movies that they've seen, many, many children's stories involve death, but not many of them involve grief. It's a, it's a device that we've used culturally to mark the beginning of the hero's journey right? It's like something terrible has happened. Now this person or this kid needs to go and slay the dragon and take back the kingdom to restore order and avenge his father's death, for example. For example, all Disney movies. For example, yes. <laughs> insert <laughs> insert different kind of villain. And those stories are great for lots of reasons. Like I, I don't have issue with them, but I do have a little concern about the absolute lack of grief in those stories because the implicit expectation is something terrible has happened, get back out there and make good on it. And while there is deep meaning on the other side of grief, and there is deep opportunity for resilience, it's not rushed like that. And it's not a byproduct. It is the work of grief. So I think we really have set ourselves up for this expectation of um, speed that isn't helpful. I kind of wish we talked to kids about grief, kind of like the way we talk to kids about sex, like in these little conversations that happen over and over throughout the context of their development, right? The kinds of conversation that you're going to have about sex with your five-year-old is super different than with your 15-year-old. But grief and death and loss are sort of the same kind of thing. They are these incredibly deep and important emotional experiences that offer us the opportunity to tap into great love and great meaning, but also can really break us if they're not done well. But we don't often sort of think about the importance of talking to children about those kinds of experiences, which I think is, you know, an oversight on our part. I was going to ask that. How do you talk to kids about this piece. And the context for this is that my father was an entrepreneur, but sort of in his, in his infancy of entrepreneurship, he was a funeral director. And so his, his intentional, um, exposure for me to death was I'm going to take you to a whole bunch of funerals when you were a kid of all of my friends, parents who you have no emotional connection to. So you can have a cognitive, immersive experience in like, sort of the cultural rituals of, of death, which was fascinating to me, but I had no capacity to understand the emotionality of it. At least I understood the mechanics, but I didn't understand the emotional piece. That was like my birds and the bees talk around uh, grief and emotion was like uh, literally like a, a funeral tour. Uh, yeah, that we, uh, that we went on. Um, and so I suspect we could probably, while that was like, I appreciate the intention. Uh, I suspect we can probably be more sophisticated in the, in the language of emotion that we bring to the table around uh, this piece. How do you want to direct us to uh, funerals and death? 2.0. I love that you got like the laboratory experience without any of the like <laughs> Literally. classroom experience, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just do yeah, a bunch we, of things. <laughs> yeah, I, I like, yeah, we, we, t- we talked about all the logistics that went on behind the scenes to bring us to the moment of that uh, funeral, but we didn't, we didn't necessarily talk about the feelings. 
I do think this is a spot where going back to those children's stories, we have these wonderful opportunities when our kids are even real little to pause while we're watching Frozen or Bambi or whatever it is and have that quick conversation about like, how do you think that character really feels? Like what's what's maybe going on inside when they are experiencing the loss of this person or this figure in their lives. And to say, you know, that even just these simple things that we say when they're little, like death is a part of life. It's something that is sort of emotionally complicated for people. And so it's helpful to understand that you can have two feelings at one time or that you can be in action and in love and also um, in grief. So maybe that's a little bit complicated for a little, little kid, but um, I think the most important part is the pause and is the labeling, the labeling of emotion and the normalizing grief as an important part of relationships, of being in family, of loving people. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate the normalization of the emotion. And, you know, tying it back to this idea of it doesn't have to be on a on a timeline. It's not how fast can we get so-and-so back to, to normal. It's just honoring that they need space to feel all of their feelings and all of their feelings are okay. And we can, we can stand witness to that. And that's going to be part of, that's going to be part of life. You mentioned earlier this idea of the work of grief. What does the, what does the work look like? I think. I use that word a little bit in the sense of doing the thing that's good for us, even though it's hard for us. One of the things that we say in therapy is that the the work is to go in and through, not over and around, <laughs> but it's to go in and through. So but that works so well. I know, shoot. <laughs> but it is the naming of those things. It is the sitting with. And so I think some of the work of grief is the feeling of it. I would also say that some of the work of grief is in the memorializing. And I use that word in the sense of memory, the remembering. Mm-hmm. So we have memorial services. It sounds like you've been to your fair share. Oh, familiar. <laughs> Where people go and they say a few words and they tell stories about the one that they've lost. But the the deeper work of grief is the remembering. It is the storytelling internally so that the role of that person in your life doesn't get sort of glossed over or gone through quickly. It is the letting them matter to you and solidifying their imprint via memory, via writing, via storytelling, via the time that it takes to, you know, clean out their house or be part of these sort of grief processes. We don't get to skip it, even though it's uncomfortable. We don't get to skip it. And I suspect that's one of the things that those ambitious individuals are so good at is just the compartmentalization of feelings because they can get back to business so, so quickly. And it's, it's messy and oozy and not well contained, uh, in my experience when we, uh, when we aim to do that. One area I would just really love your commentary on more than any is, uh, how to reconcile and manage diverging views on death ritual. And so, you know, the context for this is 
I was well exposed to a certain ritual around around death. My husband is Jewish. And what I have learned is that um, the traditions around death that he was exposed to, he was on an entirely different tour than I was. And one of the interesting conversations that emerges, I have a six-year-old and she's quite fascinated cognitively in what death is all about and doesn't appreciate the emotions. Like across the street, she's like, don't get dead. Like she's it's, it's, it's a thing. It's fascinating. But we talk a lot about these traditions because she's like, what would happen? Um, and we realize we kind of come to this inflection point where we're like, uh, I don't exactly know how we would make that happen. But, you know, like, what would the actual ritual look like in terms of the coming together of these two, two pieces? I have come to realize that the ritual is actually quite important. How do you counsel people? How do you create this this reconciliation around these different traditions when it comes to experiencing uh, the grief and that and that transition? I think it's really helpful to explore the why under the tradition. Like we have this ritual of sitting Shiva. What do we do? Why do we do that? What does it mean to do that? And Perhaps the the why of we want to be present and supportive to the family. We want to make sure they're fed. We want to make sure that they know that they're on our heart and mind. That why is maybe not that different than the, you know, the sort of Protestant or Catholic memorial service that you maybe went to through your tour. So that I find a lot of unifying themes in the why. Lots of variety in the what and how. But most of us don't have a lot of traditions. And I feel like the more, in some ways, the more tradition, the better, the more meaningful things to do with this inner experience. There's a lot of wisdom across these traditions. And so even though it's a little bit tricky, the idea of finding the unifying theme or figuring out how to integrate them within a family such as yours, where people come from different religious, spiritual backgrounds to get creative with maybe pulling some of the best parts of both traditions. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because I feel like, and it's always when people are under this huge amount of stress and they've actually really never considered uh, that people will need to move through ritual in a different in a different way. I think it's part of that prepared conversation that we that we get to have um, because of because of interviews like this because of the awareness that you're bringing to the table around these elements I think it can mitigate some of the trauma of these unexpected elements uh, that are inevitable there's such good conversations to have when they're not relevant you know honestly to like sit down with your you know your executive team and sort of talk through what is our plan in the business if one of us becomes unavailable via death or via bereavement or you know like what do we do how do we cover that or to sit down with your life partner and talk through what are my end of life wishes you know do i want to be buried do i want to be cremated where do i want my ashes spread like those questions feel so awkward and unusual, but man, there's such benefit in having those conversations when it's not that relevant. Um, I think also involving children in those conversations can be super helpful. Like they have opinions and thoughts too. And, and hearing from them about how they're seeing death and death rituals within their own family, I think can be really helpful. Yeah. I like, I feel like we have conversation 2.0 emerging around 
who are the 10 difficult conversations and how to how to have them because it probably comes as no surprise that we also had very transparent conversations around like all elements of everyone's I'll call them transitional uh, paths and wishes this was just like these were matter of fact conversations that I started to have with my parents starting at like I don't know, 16, 17. And now we actually just have this fluidity around how we are able to speak to some of those uh, pieces. And the thing I think I will appreciate is that decisions that I need to make with respect to their their wishes, I'm not going to second guess them. They're not going to come from a place of guilt. It is going to be truly, I can honor their desires and alignment with even, you know, their comfort around being able to articulate it. It, I think it's bringing everybody a different peace of mind. So I'm not the expert here. I'm just acknowledging as sort of an average person who's had the opportunity to have that conversation. There's a, a different clarity that I have around what I think that emotional space is going to uh, look like. And I, I don't have to worry about decision fatigue uh, at the same time. It can save you some anguish and yeah, decision fatigue. Exactly. Yeah. Cause you want, you want to honor people. And I, and I think really this is, this is part of the complexity of the emotions is you're feeling all of your own feelings. And then there's also, you know, how do I honor this person who was uh, so important to me in my own life. And, and that is a challenge I've always had is, you know, I will watch someone uh, pass. It can be a famous person. It could be the queen. And how do we summarize the contribution that we make as uh, individuals in our lifetime into these single moments? I think that's actually one of the, when I witness other people's passing, that's the part that always catches me emotionally is how do we summarize their legacy into these like single rituals that that has a whole layer of grief in and of itself to me is like how do we honor people and i also think that there are lots of creative ways to honor people that i i hope we feel increasingly free to do those in different ways and in different timelines you know sometimes the you're not ready a week after their death or three weeks after their death to make the grand statement about the role they've played in your life. And so if we could loosen some of the expectations around that timeline, I think that would be fantastic. (laughs) But I think the importance of finding an honoring practice, even acknowledging the fact that it may not be what you think it's going to be. So my, my dad and brother were both born in May. And my brother died in May. So there's this sort of week in May where it's both of their birthdays and then the anniversary of my brother's death. And that's become a week where I always do something special. So I'll go on a yoga retreat or I'll go backpacking or um, this last year I created a whole um, circus show around death and grief for a mental health fundraiser. But it's a week that's set apart And I think will always be in my life. And that's part of this ritual of integrating grief into my life and also honoring the role that these very important people played in my life. But it's not in the, not in a way that I've ever heard of before, right? It's not like I've got a bench in the park for my dad. And and those things are great. But I think the freedom to really honor people for who they are in your life in a way that most matches your inner heart and your experience with them. I I love that suggestion. And it, it, it sort of segues to this idea of, you know, as we approach, uh, as we approach the, the, I'll say the Christmas holiday and the holidays in general, how, how do you help people move through 
those uh, through those time periods. And it's not just it's not always just death. Sometimes it's it's you know you're grieving a marriage or you're grieving these things that previously we had these special times together, and I the special times will never be the same. How do we transition people through that? I mean, I have a kid who's going to college next year. So it's this sense of like, he's not going to, hopefully he'll come home for Christmas. But I guess there's all kinds of these layers of missingness in our lives that happen, even in normative, happy, happy situations where you have a kid that's successful and ready to launch. Um, So I think when we have these holiday rituals, that's where we feel the loss of our family members or their absence in a different way. I, I really like a couple of rituals that our family has adopted. One is we always set a place at the table for my dad and for my brother. And so there's an empty seat at our holiday table. And usually we just put a candle on their plate. And, but we, you know, they get a full place setting and a place card and everything. And so it's a way of honoring their presence and absence and the role that they would play in sitting at the table. It's sort of also welcoming them um, in a spiritual sense of honoring their position. My dad was very loved Christmas, was like over the top with like all of the lights and all of the like tchotchke things. And we have Christmas still, of course. Um, But mostly we travel over the actual Christmas holiday. Because we're sort of my my nuclear family is resetting some new rituals. So instead of this big extended family Christmas with people who are no longer here anymore, we do a Christmas vacation. We do a holiday trip. And that's felt really helpful and important to honor that I don't want to pretend it's the same as it used to be. It's a different family constellation and it's a different situation and it's a different people in the room. And so honoring that difference by letting it be different is as important as holding on to some of those traditions by keeping their presence with you by, for example, setting a place at the table. So it's a both and and it is sort of nuanced. And I think it does take some thought to be able to balance those dynamics well. Sherry, I so appreciate how you are writing a whole new set of, I'm not even going to say rules, frameworks around how we can think about uh, death and transitions and grief and uh, some of these inevitable elements that are going to be part of that human experience. And I feel that this is a, a, a meaningful place to transition the interview into something I call our impact ingredients. So these are more uh, rapid fire insight questions into uh, who you are as an individual and as an entrepreneur. Um, and my first question for you is when you need it at a moment's notice, how do you cultivate courage? Breath. What's your motivational beverage of choice? Coffee. <laughs> uh, what's what is Black. This? just fuel? Just <laughs> straight in. Uh, what is the biggest non-negotiable for you in your life? Movement. As an entrepreneur, were you born with it, or did you learn to become an entrepreneur? I caught it through contagion from my husband and friends. <laughs> Best kind of infection. (laughs) And lastly, what do you want your legacy of impact to be? Mm. Playfulness in the midst of hard things. 
I love and appreciate that so much. Dr. Sherry Walling, where can we send people to follow along on your journey and get their hands on a copy of Touching Two Worlds? Ooh. So I am on the internet as at Sherry Walling on Instagram, on Twitter at SherryWalling.com. And uh, my new book, Touching Two Worlds, which is actually my second book, but it is available kind of wherever books are sold at your local bookstore, on Amazon. Uh, my first book is called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, which is a little bit of a mental health overview for entrepreneurs, which might also be interesting to some in this crew, which is also on Amazon. Perfect. I feel like we're going to have to have that conversation as we emerge into 2023. Thank you so much for your time. All the links to follow Sherry, find her book, um, and access her as an amazing resource can be found at meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. Sherry, thanks so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in, or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.